Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's say hello to our guest, the Princess of Alderaan, better known to us as actress Carrie Fisher. Welcome back to Earth. Thank you. It's been a long time. Have you got your lamb legs back yet? I'm not actually all back yet. <laughs> when you hear the name Carrie Fisher, what do you think of? A fresh-faced space princess dressed all in white? A rebel disguised as a bounty hunter, trying to rescue Han Solo? Or a cheeky 60-year-old woman, covered in glitter, with a middle finger proudly in the air? Carrie Fisher was all of those things, and so much more. She was a princess and a general, but she was also a mental health advocate, a writer, and one funny dame. For so many of us, Carrie was not just a hero on screen, but a hero in real life as well. She had battled addiction, survived mental illness, challenged sexism in Hollywood, and she did it all with candor and wit. One of the wonderful things about Carrie Fisher was that her life was an open book. While some celebrities go to extreme lengths to maintain their privacy, Carrie gave us exclusive access to almost every facet of her life so that we could relate and laugh along with her. I began doing research for this episode shortly after Carrie passed in December, and one of the reasons it took me so long was because I really had a difficult time um, dealing with her passing. But after I read each interview that she gave or page that she had written, 
I began to find comfort in both her writing and her words. She once said that she, quote, wrote things to get out of feeling them and onto paper. So writing in a way saved me, kept me company, end quote. On this episode, I will try to tell the story of Carrie Fisher using her own words as much as possible. You will hear her thoughts on growing up in the shadow of her famous mother, what it was like to be the ambassador of Leia, and how she learned to outlast her problems and, in her words, Sir Thrive. It's still difficult for me to believe that we won't ever see Carrie Fisher again, causing hilarious mischief on a red carpet or talk show with little Gary by her side. But maybe, as we look back on her life and legacy, her words will keep us company. So join me in raising our lightsabers to honor the great Carrie Fisher. This is The Jedi Beat. I'm your host, Jennifer Landa. Long before she was Princess Leia in Star Wars, Carrie Frances Fisher was considered royalty. Her parents, actress Debbie Reynolds and singer Eddie Fisher, were known as America's sweethearts in the 1950s. So when Carrie Fisher was born in a Burbank hospital on October 21st, 1956, her entrance into the world was memorable. In the 1950s, epidurals were not an option for mothers in labor. That wouldn't happen until the 1970s. Instead, Debbie Reynolds was given an anesthetic and consequently was unconscious for Carrie's arrival. Her father, Eddie, meanwhile, fainted at the mere sight of her. The nurses in the hospital room immediately rushed over to help and gawk at the famous crooner lying on the ground. In her memoir, Wishful Drinking, Carrie reflects, quote, When I arrived, I was virtually unattended, and I have been trying to make up for that fact ever since. End quote. Two hours after she was born, Carrie was photographed with her movie star mother and pop sensation father for Modern Screen Magazine. She would later lament this fact, saying, it wasn't even a good picture. I couldn't find that magazine issue, but I did discover a few magazine photos of Carrie at two and a half months old. She looks like a healthy and alert baby with a wide-eyed expression and sweet little chubby cheeks. She's absolutely adorable. The caption in the woman's magazine called her the, quote, husky offspring of Reynolds and Fisher. It's not a description I would have used, but even at two and a half months old, her weight was of interest. For the first year and a half, life was pretty good in the Fisher-Reynolds household. They were Hollywood's golden family, until her father left her mother for Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth and her former husband, Mike Todd, had been close friends with Debbie and Eddie. So when Mike Todd tragically died in a small plane crash, Eddie comforted Elizabeth in more ways than one. As if that betrayal wasn't enough, Debbie and the kids had to deal with a divorce in the public eye. The paparazzi hounded them wherever they went. The press dove through trees to get pictures of Debbie and her children. And Debbie, who was 27 years old at the time, kept her composure and grace throughout the public drama. But Carrie? If you look at the photos from that period in her life, she looks like a toddler who is scared and wary of the crowd with their cameras. In the documentary Bright Lights, Carrie said that she remembers a sensation of the paparazzi trampling over her and her brother Todd to get a photo of their mother. She said that that experience made her feel like her mother belonged to the photographers. Having to share her mother with the rest of the world would be something Carrie would wrestle with for many years to come. The media circus would continue when the following year, Debbie Reynolds married shoe mogul Harry Carl, the movie star and the multi-millionaire. From outward appearances, sure looked like a great match. The family lived in a sprawling estate that Carrie dubbed the Embassy because it looked like a place where you'd get your passport stamped. It certainly wasn't a typical home. For one thing, it had three swimming pools and eight little pink refrigerators. Just in case Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs showed up, Carrie once joked. 
Their lavish lifestyle did not make up for the cold and sterile feeling Carrie had in their home. Nor did it make up for the fact that Debbie was often away, performing shows in Las Vegas. Carrie recalled that when she and Todd would miss their mother, they would go into her closet and put their faces into her clothes and inhale the powdery, flowery scent of her. When Debbie was home, she was so exhausted from the strains of performing that she usually slept a lot. As for Harry, Carrie was not so fond of him. Yeah. What would you like to say about Harry Carl? There he is. And the one woman show you say he's distinguished. He was That's when you say he's someone's rich and ugly. They're distinguished looking. <laughs> he enjoyed keeping himself well manicured and groomed. In fact, Harry was regularly visited by his barber, who was actually a pimp, and manicurists, who were actually prostitutes. And over the course of their 13-year marriage, Harry gambled away Debbie's $100 million fortune. Never one to feel sorry for herself, Debbie did what she always did best, put on a good show. Since Debbie was now a single mother, Carrie and Todd moved with their mother to New York City. In 1973, Debbie Reynolds made her Broadway debut as Irene O'Dare in the musical comedy Irene. You know you made me It would also mark the Broadway debut for Carrie, who played a debutante in the chorus. Carrie was only 15 and therefore had to drop out of Beverly Hills High School in order to take the role in the musical. However, this was not Carrie's first foray into show business. When she was 13, she regularly performed with her mother in her Las Vegas shows. Now, you may have heard Carrie Fisher sing in the Star Wars Holiday Special. We celebrate a day of peace. Or maybe you've heard her sing a couple bars on a talk show. But to understand how phenomenal a singer Carrie Fisher was, I want for you to listen to this. When you're weary, feeling small, when tears are in your eyes, I will drive them That was from the documentary Bright Lights, and Carrie was only 15 years old in that clip. While she would go on to become a great actress and writer, the biggest thing that broke her mother's heart was that Carrie never pursued a career in singing. Debbie had dreamed Carrie would one day have her own nightclub act in Vegas. There are different versions of why Carrie eventually decided to pursue any career in show business. In 1977, she told People Magazine that she had always grown up with the, quote, ambition to do what my mother did, end quote. In her first appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, she told him, Somebody told me you were not allowed to get dirty. No, well, a... we were photographed a lot. We were allowed sort of once a week. We were let loose on the gutter. And then uh, we, could, we, were, we could get dirty, yeah. which is a big thrill for us. One of the reasons I went into show business was I visited the set and watched my mother fall in mud and stuff, and I thought, well, Gee. there's a way to do it. But later on in life, Carrie said that she initially didn't want to have anything to do with the entertainment industry. In her most recent memoir, The Princess Diarist, she said that growing up with famous parents showed her firsthand how fleeting and fickle fame could be. She once told Oprah, Celebrity is just obscurity biding its time. Wow. Eventually, all fame will disappear. Yeah. And I watched that happen. So I never wanted to go into show business. It's heartbreaking. I watched that be heartbreaking. So why she decided to visit the set of Shampoo, knowing that she might get a role in the film, is anyone's guess, including Carrie's. She was only 17 at the time, which made her perfect for the role of Lorna, 
a rich kid who sleeps with her mother's hairdresser, played by Warren Beatty, as an act of revenge. Your chin's a little bit like hers, too. No, it isn't. No, no, and my eyes they're aren't with, workers either. They are. No, they're, they're not. They no, are. they're not. I, they I'm really nothing are. like my mother. Can't we just, uh, be friends? Okay. You wanna f Carrie only has two scenes in the film, but even at a young age, she had charisma on screen. In the film, she wears a headscarf over a long-haired wig and a white, form-fitting tennis outfit. Prior to filming, the costume designer asked the producer, co-writer, and star of Shampoo, Warren Beatty, if Carrie should wear a bra under her shirt. According to Carrie, Warren stood there, looked at her breasts, then asked to see what it would look like without her bra. So, Carrie changed, returned to Warren braless under her shirt, and he again stood there, looked at her breasts, and said, let's go without. I find this story interesting for several reasons. When I watched the film, I noticed that Carrie was not wearing a bra and assumed it had been her choice. During the 1970s, it was both a political and fashion statement not to wear a bra, so I figured it was a style thing. Plus, the Carrie Fisher I grew up knowing was either the strong-willed space princess or the outspoken writer and actress. But it wasn't her choice and I don't think she liked not having control over the appearance of her braless breasts that could be, as she once put it, ogled on YouTube or LubeTube. You can argue, well, her character sexually propositions an older man, so she is obviously comfortable with her sexuality, so it makes sense that she wouldn't wear a bra. And maybe that was why Warren made that wardrobe choice for her. But Carrie, at 17, wasn't comfortable with her sexuality yet and was still discovering who she was as both a young woman and an actress. Who knows what choice Carrie would have made, if given the power to choose. But her bra would be a topic of discussion for many years to come. After Shampoo, Carrie moved to England to study at the Central School of Speech and Drama, whose alumni include Laurence Olivier, Dame Judi Dench, and Bodhi Rook himself, Riz Ahmed. Carrie was thrilled to be living on her own, far, far away from her mother. An added bonus was learning the craft of acting. She still wasn't sure she wanted to make a career out of it, but hey, she was only 17, so she had some time to figure those things out. That short period of her life was pretty great. As she told interviewer Brian Linehan in 1986, I loved living there. That was the only time in my life where even though I was in an acting school, I wasn't sort of in a kind of frenetic uh, show business environment. So it was really the most normal, if I could even identify normalcy at this point, it was the most normal, easy time that I ever had. The normalcy would be short-lived, thanks to a low-budget sci-fi film directed by some guy from Modesto. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In 1975, directors George Lucas and Brian De Palma decided to hold joint casting sessions for their films. They were both looking for actors around the same age, so it made sense for them to team up. Here's Brian De Palma from the documentary, Acting Carrie. George and I were both looking for unknowns. So we sat together and basically went through hundreds of boys and girls looking for the cast for Carrie and Star Wars. For George Lucas, finding the right actors with the right chemistry would take months. It just happened that we were both making these movies and casting at the same time, so we decided to combine our efforts. I've made movies with very young people that have no track record, so I have to kind of go through and discover them, pick them, and then test them and go through them and have readings. And so it takes a long time. I spent you know, probably six or seven months casting Star Wars, and uh, you know, that's a long process to sit in a little room and interview people. And I interviewed thousands of people. Young actors like Kurt Russell and Sylvester Stallone auditioned for the role of Han Solo. Actresses like Jodie Foster and Cindy Williams, who had been in American Graffiti and would later star in Laverne and Shirley, auditioned for the role of Princess Leia. Our only hope in destroying it is to find its weakness, which we will determine from the data I stored in R2. The role of Princess Leia was a challenging one. The actress who would play her would have to be young, but believable as a leader, strong-willed and defiant, yet likable, regal, but capable of shooting a blaster. Plus, she'd have to be able to easily and believably rattle off absurd lines of dialogue. The plans and specifications to a battle station with enough firepower to destroy an entire system. Our only hope in destroying it is to find its weakness which we will determine from the data I stored in R2. Carrie seemed like the perfect fit for Princess Leia Organa. After all, Carrie was already considered Hollywood royalty. She was young, beautiful, and seemed wiser beyond her years. How Carrie perceived herself at that time was in stark contrast to the feisty heroine she would portray on screen. When Carrie auditioned for George Lucas and Brian De Palma, she was plagued with self-doubt. As she wrote in The Princess Diarist, quote, Did they like me? Did they think I was fat? Did they think I looked pretty enough? The answer to all these questions was yes. Carrie Fisher booked the once-in-a-lifetime role of Princess Leia, with one condition. I got it with the proviso that I went to a fat farm and that I lose 10 pounds. To lose the obligatory 10 pounds from her already petite frame, Carrie went to a weight loss camp in Texas. There, she spent a week forming friendships with former First Lady Lady Bird Johnson and advice columnist Ann Landers over unsatisfying meals. When she left, she weighed 105 pounds, the same amount as when she arrived. As we know, when it came to creating the world of Star Wars, 
Every detail was scrutinized and perfected. Hairdresser Pat McDermott was given several sketches of hairstyles that she should use as a guideline for Princess Leia's hairstyle. She tried out ponytails, braids, wrapping, pinning, hairspraying, until she finally found a hairstyle that she felt confident George Lucas would like. Carrie was not so confident. Having just been sent to a, quote, fat farm, made her, understandably, self-conscious. Well, I weighed about 105 at the time. Well, no, but to be fair now, I carried about 50 of those pounds in my face. So you know what a good idea would be, though? Give me a hairstyle that further widens my already wide face. The consensus amongst the director and male producers was that the hairstyle was flattering. When George Lucas asked Carrie what she thought of the do, Carrie, who was worried she'd be fired for not losing those darn pounds, agreeably said, I love it. Little did she know then that those hair buns would not only become synonymous with Leia, but also with Carrie herself. On the first day of filming Star Wars A New Hope, Carrie arrived on set with her hair in two buns and wearing a long sleeve silky white dress with an embellished white leather belt wrapped around her waist. She was taken to George Lucas for final approval of the costume before they were to begin filming. Takes one look at me and he says, you can't wear a bra underneath that dress. So I say, why? He says, because there's no underwear in space. <laughs> I swear to God. I promise you that he said this. And the man said it with such conviction, too, you know? Like he'd actually been to space, looked around, didn't see any bras or panties or briefs. Many years later, Carrie was performing her one-woman show, Wishful Drinking, like the clip you just heard, in Berkeley, California. After the show, George visited Carrie backstage and explained how he had arrived at the bizarre no-underwear-in-space decision so many years ago. He told Carrie that when you go to space, you become weightless. Your body expands, but your underwear doesn't. Carrie was hilariously baffled by George's reasoning. In her book, Wishful Drinking, Carrie hypothesized that if your body expands, but your bra doesn't, you would get strangled by your own bra. What a fantastic obituary, she thought. Quote, so I tell my younger friends that no matter how I go, I want it reported that I drowned in moonlight, strangled by my own bra. End quote. So, no bras in space. But... I guess they do have gaffer's tape in other galaxies since that's what they used on her breast to maintain the film's PG rating. Making Star Wars was exciting, but also anxiety-provoking for Carrie. Because she was one of the few women on the set of Star Wars. You know, I didn't really have anyone. I didn't confide in men. Well, I didn't confide in anyone then. If you've read Carrie's memoir, The Princess Diarist, and I highly recommend that you do, she uses humor and thoughtfulness to reflect on her insecurities during the filming of Star Wars. In the book are excerpts from the journals that she kept during that time. As Ken said on one of our Force Center episodes, we thought that these journals would share fun little new behind-the-scenes tidbits about the making of A New Hope. Instead, her journal excerpts are raw with emotion, vulnerability, and sadness. They're also primarily about her affair with Harrison Ford. Here is an excerpt from one of those journals. George says that if you look at the person that someone chooses to have a relationship with, you'll see what they think of themselves. So Harrison is what I think of myself. It's hardly a relationship, but nevertheless, he is a choice. I examined all the options and chose the most likely to leave. No emotional investments. Never love for me, only obsession. Someone has to stand still for you to love them. My choices are always on the run. At the time when Carrie wrote this, she was 19 and had only had one boyfriend before her affair with Harrison Ford. So how could she have had a pattern of choosing men who were always on the run? 
As she admitted in The Princess Diarist, her issues with abandonment could be traced back to her father, who left the family when she was 18 months old. Quote, if I couldn't get my own father to love me enough to stick around, or, God forbid, visit more often than one day a year, how was I ever going to get a man who didn't have to love me like daddies were supposed to? End quote. As Carrie often said, she was more defined by her father's absence than his presence. Interestingly enough, this is a sentiment that could also be expressed by Leah Organa herself. In a 1983 interview with Rolling Stone magazine, Carrie noted the similarities between her real-life family and the Skywalkers. Quote, a lot of parallels, me and Leah. Dad goes off to the dark side and mom marries a millionaire. My brother and I went in different directions on the Debbie and Eddie issue. He's gotten involved with Jesus, and I do active work on myself, trying to make myself better and better. End quote. But any insecurities she may have had off-screen... On screen as Leia, she became one of the greatest heroines in cinema. Governor Tarkin, I should have expected to find you holding Vader's leash. I recognized your foul stench when I was brought on board. Charming to the last. The impact Princess Leia has had on generations of fans around the world is immeasurable. She was unlike any other princess on screen before her and she set the bar for what a movie heroine should be. Here's Carrie Fisher talking about her groundbreaking character on The Mike Douglas Show in 1977. It's not your damsel in distress, average, everyday, run-of-the-mill princess. She doesn't scream and faint without the guys. She's okay on her own. Uh, George has written terrific characters for all of us. You didn't write sort of your... Oh, God, please help me, Mike, please. They're chasing me, the stormtroopers. It's no longer believable, huh? No, she's a very independent girl. She goes swing across, shoots stormtroopers, hangs around with Wookiees and Jawas and sand people. <laughs> you know. My first memories of Leia were from Return of the Jedi, since that was the first Star Wars movie I saw. To me, Princess Leia was perfect. She rescues Han Solo from being frozen in carbonite. She exudes power and strength, and she kills a giant slug while looking gorgeous in a bikini. Oh yeah, about that bikini? She hated it. Like, over 30 years later, she was still talking about how much she hated it. Before filming, George Lucas asked her to come out to San Francisco to discuss the script for Return of the Jedi. During the meeting, George showed her a sketch of Leia, wearing that iconic bikini. Carrie thought he was kidding. The idea of being so exposed made her nervous to wear it. Plus, the potential for a wardrobe malfunction was high. Portions of the bikini top and bottom were made of plastic, which meant that it didn't exactly fit and form to her body. So, if she laid a certain way, her lady parts became visible. She was instructed to sit perfectly straight to avoid any creases in her skin. The only thing that redeemed having to wear that skimpy bikini was embodying female empowerment and becoming a hut slayer. I sawed his neck off with that, that chain that I killed him with. I really relished that because I hated wearing that outfit and sitting there rigid straight, and I couldn't wait to kill him. Carrie may not have liked wearing the Slave Leia bikini at the time, but when she saw photos of herself in the costume many years later, she recognized that she made that outfit look good. She told the Daily Beast in 2015, quote, I have serious body dysmorphia issues, but I must admit being somewhat proud looking back at the photos, end quote. While Slave Leia may have helped many young people come of age, so to speak, Carrie was never comfortable with being a sex symbol. She seemed weirded out by the idea. Whether she was talking about her braless appearance in shampoo, or telling the story about George saying, there's no bras in space, or sharing her discomfort about laying next to a drooling slug while wearing a bikini, it's almost like she wanted people to know that it was never her choice to become an object of desire. So what was one of the pieces of advice she gave Star Wars newcomer Daisy Ridley? You should fight for your outfit. Don't be a slave like I was. 
It was around the time of Return of the Jedi that Carrie's relationship with drugs began to intensify. She was 13 when she first tried marijuana, and her experimentation with the drug continued over the next six years. During the three months of filming A New Hope, she found herself occasionally drinking alcohol, even though she hated the feeling it gave her, and more frequently smoking Harrison Ford's preferred strain of pot. But after that period, her pot-induced reality was becoming more and more creepy, dark, and scary. So it was time to find a new habit. During the filming of The Empire Strikes Back, Carrie did cocaine on the set of the planet Hoth. Very appropriate that it was the snow planet. But like alcohol, Carrie later admitted that, quote, I didn't even like coke that much. It was just a case of getting on whatever train I needed to take to get high, end quote. By Return of the Jedi, she had found a new train to board, hallucinogens and painkillers. It became apparent to her mother, Debbie, that Carrie had a drug problem. So she called someone whom she thought might be able to counsel her daughter and turn her off the drug-beaten path. This person was none other than Carrie Grant. Well, here we are again. During the 1950s and 60s, Cary Grant regularly dropped acid under the supervision of a psychiatrist. Over the course of a decade, he dropped acid more than 100 times. He was a big advocate for the experimental drug, saying that it loosened his deep fears, made him happier, and that he believed there was a curative power in the drug itself. So if anyone knew about acid, it was Cary Grant. When Cary, called Cary, they spent an hour on the phone chatting about her LSD addiction. She wasn't addicted to LSD, Carrie told Carrie. He believed her, and they ended the conversation amiably. What she failed to mention was that she was addicted to opiates. In 1983, Carrie Fisher married singer-songwriter Paul Simon in a ceremony in his apartment. They initially met shortly after A New Hope was released. According to Carrie, she and Paul understood each other perfectly. Although they were only married for two years, they were together on and off for 12. Their relationship was a tumultuous love affair, but it led to some great music, as that type of love often does. One and one half wandering Jews, free to wander wherever they choose. Their marriage wouldn't last for several reasons, but one of them was Carrie's drug addiction that had spiraled out of control. Carrie knew she had a problem. Quote, Slowly, I realized I was doing a bit more drugs than other people and losing my choice in the matter. End quote. Even her Blues Brothers co-star, who was a well-known drug addict, saw himself in her. John Belushi said to me, you and I are alike, and then he died. And he was right, because I could have. By 1984, she was taking up to 30 Percodin a day. She once told Psychology Today that with an addiction like that, you don't even get high. It's like a job. You punch in. To keep her habit going, she lied to doctors and looked through friends' medicine cabinets and drawers. One of the things I admire about Carrie Fisher was how hard she worked to understand her addiction and that she was willing to share her findings with the world. Here she is talking to interviewer Charlie Rose in 1994. When I get loaded, I'm not an angry doper. I'm, I just get quieter than this. And that was my goal. My goal was to act like how I perceived other people to be acting. So you were using drugs to get like to the way you thought To modify my other behavior. Trying to keep up that act took a toll on Carrie. Until one day, it happened. Here's her mom, Debbie Reynolds, on The Oprah Show. She was doing a film. She had a collapsed on the set, and they had taken her to Cedars Sinai. First of all, it was a terrifying night. It was pouring rain. So you can just picture you're in the car with the rain smashing against the windshield, and you're crying like mad, and you, you don't know if, the, if your daughter's going to be alive when you get there. There have been a few times when I thought that I was going to lose Carrie, I've had to walk through a lot of my tears, but she's worth it. Almost dying shocked Carrie into going into rehab. It was there that she was diagnosed with manic depression, which would later be called bipolar disorder. The textbook definition is a disorder associated with mood swings, ranging from depressive lows 
to manic highs. Being diagnosed manic depressive didn't come as a complete shock to Carrie or her family. She'd always felt that she was different, or as she put it, that there was something wrong with her. Her mother, Debbie, had noticed a change in Carrie's personality when she was 13. Carrie would eventually name her two mood swings. There was Rollicking Roy, who was the life of the party. We look like we're tired. We're having a ball. And then there was Pam, who stands on the shore and sobs. Where am I in all this? I have no idea, because I feel like it's a little mood relay, you know? I'm Pam now. But I just fit snugly into the mood pocket that is Pam. I don't have any choice. I don't dictate the ride. Despite being diagnosed, Carrie had a difficult time accepting her illness and that it would be a condition she'd have to deal with for the rest of her life. In 1985, after her near-death experience, Carrie did an interview for Esquire magazine. If you dig through Esquire's archives and read the interview, her brilliant wit and ability to both be introspective and funny are on full display. What I think actually made the interview so unique was her ability to take difficult subjects like divorce, drugs, and mental health, and find the light and humor in the darkness. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do. It also takes a certain amount of self-awareness, which some might argue, is not typical of the child of celebrities. One of Carrie's famous quotes was, quote, if my life wasn't funny, it would just be true, and that is unacceptable, end quote. She told Matt Lauer in 2008, It better get funny fast, or it's just going to be something that haunts you. So I make very difficult situations in my life funny as quickly as possible. That Esquire magazine article made such an impact that a publishing house read the interview and wrote Carrie a letter asking if she wanted to write a book. Carrie said yes. After all, she was in rehab at the time, so she had plenty of downtime. Plus, writing had always been a passion of hers. She had been writing since she was 12, keeping daily journals and writing poetry. As Carrie once said, Take your broken heart and turn it into art. For her first novel, she decided to tackle the very personal subject of a complicated relationship between a daughter and her mother. In her early 20s, Carrie harbored a lot of anger and resentment towards her mother. For one thing, she was mad that her mother had maintained a relationship with Carrie's grandmother and Debbie's mom, Maxine Harmon. Maxine had been an abusive mother to Debbie, sometimes whipping her or locking her in a closet as a form of punishment when she was a child. Up until the day she passed, Maxine remained verbally abusive to Debbie. Carrie, even as a child, was the confidant of her mother. When Debbie was upset or hurt, Carrie took on the burden as well. Carrie also felt horrible that her mother had to put up with Harry Carl's antics and was left penniless after the divorce. So by the 1980s, their mother-daughter relationship was so volatile that the two barely spoke to each other for almost 10 years. It may have been heartbreaking and painful for Debbie, but in addition to her anger, Carrie was trying to establish her independence and create an identity that was separate from her mother's. Carrie told Oprah, quote, I didn't want to be around her. I did not want to be Debbie Reynolds' daughter, end quote. But being the child of celebrities was something she would never be able to escape, particularly because she had lived her life in the public eye ever since the moment she was born. That self-awareness that I spoke of earlier? Here is Carrie talking to Charlie Rose about the conflict of being a celebrity kid. I had it so cushy, and yeah. I knew people thought, oh, she's such a spoiled, she had such an easy... Right, right. And I, so I've been, I have been knocked around by myself and a little bit more now by the world. And so, I don't know, I earned, I earned yeah. being a human. What do we want to be but like each other? I didn't want to be different from other people, and that's what celebrities are. So being a celebrity kid, that's the dichotomy. Yeah. You want to fit in, not stick out. With other celebrity kids? No, you, I wasn't just around celebrity kids. Yeah. Oh, you wanted to fit in with other normal yeah. people who weren't celebrity I, my, kids? My fantasy was to be normal. Any idea what she's taking? Pills, sir. Demerol, Percodan, and cocaine. Give me your vitals. 
Blood pressure's 84 over 20. Suzanne? Suzanne, we're gonna have to pump your stomach. Oh. That was a clip from Postcards from the Edge, starring Meryl Streep and Shirley MacLaine and written by Carrie Fisher. Later on in the movie, Meryl Streep's character receives flowers from none other than the doctor who pumped her stomach. This actually happened in Carrie's real life. Postcards from the Edge was the first novel that she wrote and she later adapted into a film. It's a semi-autobiographical story about a rehabbed actress struggling in her mom's shadow. Remember my 17th birthday party when you lifted your skirt up in front of all those I people? I did not lift my guy skirt. Michael. It twirled up! You only remember the bad stuff, don't you? What about the big band that I got to play at that party? Do big you remember band. that? No! You only remember that my skirt accidentally twirled up! And you weren't wearing any underwear. The novel Postcards from the Edge became a bestseller, and the film was number one at the box office on opening weekend. The film would also get two Academy Award nominations, including Best Actress for Meryl Streep and Best Original Song. Some have asked why Carrie Fisher didn't take the lead role in a film that was loosely based upon her life. She told Larry King in 1990 that the thought never occurred to her. She felt that portraying Suzanne would have been too intense, and she didn't like the idea of saying her own dialogue. As for the role of her mother that would eventually go to Shirley MacLaine, Carrie's own mother lobbied for the part. But at the time, Carrie thought it would just be too weird. In hindsight, she confessed that her mother should have gotten the role. Quote, she would have been great. End quote. being Peter Pan, you won't be Peter Pan, so eat up! After the success of Postcards from the Edge, Carrie was asked to rewrite Steven Spielberg's Hook. Quote, They told me they wanted me to rewrite Tinkerbell's part, but if Tinkerbell interacts, you're writing scenes. End quote. She was uncredited for the writing she did on Julia Roberts' Tinkerbell character. As fellow Hook screenwriter Jim V. Hart explained, Steven tends to use writers like paintbrushes. He wants this writer for this, this writer for that. The joke was that everyone in town who had his fax number was writing for it. Regardless, it was her work on Hook that led to Carrie becoming one of the most sought-after script doctors in Hollywood. She was recruited by Whoopi Goldberg to rework Whoopi's dialogue in the film Sister Act. That led to script doctoring on Lethal Weapon 3 and Whoopi Goldberg's 1993 film Made in America with Ted Danson. Carrie would also write for the maker himself, George Lucas. George hired Carrie to write an episode for The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, his TV series that aired on ABC during 1992 to 1993. I'll see you back at my hotel at, say, 11 o'clock. All right, swell. Perhaps I'll have something Greek there for you to read. Or French. Perhaps. Okay. I mean, swell. George ended up buying her a lamp for writing the episode. Hey, I bought you a lamp. According to a story she told the Daily Beast in 2015, Carrie admitted that she was a script doctor on the Star Wars prequels. But when the interviewer pressed her on which scenes she rewrote, she coyly said, oh no, I can't play. Carrie had a lucrative career as a script doctor through the 90s, but by the early 2000s, she stopped taking on projects. Carrie later revealed that the reason why was because she didn't like having to jump through so many hoops to get the job. She said that in order to get a rewrite job, you have to submit your notes for ideas on how to fix the script. Quote, so they can get all the notes from all the different writers, keep the notes, and not hire you. That's free work, and that's what I always call life-wasting events. End quote. I think a lot of us creatives should take note of that advice. A life-changing event that occurred in the 90s was the birth of her daughter, Billy, in 1992. Billy's father was Hollywood super agent Brian Lord, who Carrie dated for three years. They split one year after Billy was born when Brian left Carrie for another man. In an interview with the Daily Mail, Carrie said, quote, people ask if it lessens the blow that he left me for a man, 
because it's a rejection of my gender. And so it is impersonal. But I don't care what people say. I was humiliated and betrayed, and I believed I'd somehow messed up. I don't know if I believed I made him gay, but I'd failed. And that's all that really counts. End quote. But Carrie got through the heartache and ended up having a friendly relationship with Brian, even going on vacations with Billy, Brian, and his boyfriend. And in classic Carrie fashion, she managed to find the humor in the situation. Quote, I'm glad I got Billy a good dad. He's everything my father wasn't, including gay. End quote. If you're manic depressive and you're living with it, it takes balls or the female equivalent. And, you know, it's people make fun of it or want, don't want anyone to know. Man, I don't care. In 1997, Carrie was in a deep depression. Getting out of bed to pick up eight-year-old Billy from school felt impossible. Doctors had prescribed her medication, but it wasn't helping. And then she suffered a psychotic break. When she admitted herself into Cedars-Sinai Medical Center's psychiatric ward, she didn't write her name upon checking in. I wrote with my left hand, mm -hmm. and I wrote the word shame. But I was really, which it was, it was something that you would be ashamed of, to lose control to that extent. To, I didn't know, in a way, who I was. Her brother Todd was afraid he was going to lose his sister. He said that the doctors feared that she might not come back. The doctors believed Carrie was allergic to one of the medications she was taking. In order to determine which one it was, they took her off all of her meds. This caused Carrie to stay awake for six days and six nights. She became paranoid, thinking everything she watched on TV was about her. She also began hallucinating, thinking a beautiful golden light was coming out of her head. Carrie was completely detached from reality, but she still held on to her sense of humor. My shrink came at one point. And uh, I told her I didn't know if I believed in, in uh, reincarnation, but if there was such a thing, I was hoping to come back as her shrink. Once the doctors changed the medication she was taking, she gradually came back to reality. Since she was no longer incapacitated, she was moved to a mental hospital where she could be with other patients. In Carrie's words, quote, when you're in a mental hospital, it's kind of okay because it can't get any worse, end quote. After her hospitalization, she did something unexpected. She threw a party. Carrie was a bit nervous on how people would react to her, but the party was a smash. While some may opt to buy party balloons or streamers, Carrie rented an ambulance and a gurney that had a life-size cutout of Princess Leia hooked up to an IV. For many years, she managed her illness with medication, taking nearly two dozen pills a day, attending therapy, doing meditation, and taking trips around the world also helped. But as she wrote in her book, Shockaholic, she still didn't feel mentally sound. Over the years, her psychiatrist had recommended she try a more controversial treatment, electroconvulsive therapy, formerly known as shock treatment. Carrie was desperate. She was willing to try anything that would make her feel better. So she started getting the treatment done once every six weeks. What happens is they put you to sleep. They give you a medication so there are no more convulsions or anything. They put these little Electrodes. pieces of film on either side of your forehead. And small electric currents are passed through the brain, triggering a brief seizure. The treatment seems to cause changes in brain chemistry that can quickly reverse symptoms of certain mental illnesses. The whole procedure is fairly quick. Afterwards, Carrie would go home and take a nap. The only downside of the treatment was the memory loss. But the upside? Carrie felt like the treatment punched the dark lights out of her depression and achieved what antidepressant medication could not. The electroconvulsive therapy in combination with the medication worked for many years, until 2013, when she had a bipolar episode on stage while headlining a gay cruise in the Caribbean. Carrie said she went completely off the rails. She was in a severe manic state, totally delusional. The audience started leaving, Gary peed on stage, and the whole thing was caught on video and uploaded to YouTube. 
Carrie hadn't had an episode like this since the time she was in the psychiatric ward in 97. When you have a mental illness, the reality is that you can treat it, you can manage it, but it never goes away. I really admire Carrie Fisher because one month after that bipolar episode on the cruise ship, she gave an interview with People Magazine to talk about it and explain why she wasn't ashamed of what happened. Yes, she felt bad. She felt bad that the audience had come to be entertained and, quote, witnessed a car wreck. She felt bad for her family and friends, specifically her daughter, Billy. Quote, I don't want to make this spectacle-making illness to make a spectacle of me, and in doing so, her, end quote. In this interview, she admitted something very surprising. She said that because she accommodated her mental illness by developing a big, eccentric personality, at times, it made it difficult for her to gauge what her mental state was and whether she was heading towards a manic episode. Writing about her illness helped her understand it and also made light of her situation. Quote, that's my way of surviving, to abstract it into something that's funny and not dangerous. But what happened was I lost a serious relationship with it. It is not an entertainment. I'm not going to stop writing about it, but I have to understand it. End quote. In 2015, Carrie made a triumphant return to the big screen in Star Wars The Force Awakens. Many people asked Carrie if she had any hesitation about being in a new Star Wars film. No hesitation. Female, work in Hollywood, over 40, not happen. So why would I say no? Carrie never shied away from being that space princess with the donut hairstyle. She embraced it. She may have called autograph signings for money at conventions as a celebrity lap dance, but she never grew cynical about her relationship to her fans. Carrie was moved by them. She recognized the profound impact her character and the films had had on generations of fans. Carrie had been the caretaker of Princess Leia since she was 19, and she did her best to represent her, but she also wondered who she'd be without her. Carrie admitted that the identity of Princess Leia eclipsed any other identity that she ever had. She also confessed that it was a mistake to sign away her likeness to George Lucas for free. Quote, There was no merchandising tied to movies. No one could have known the extent of the franchise. Not that I don't think I'm cute or anything, but when I looked in the mirror, I didn't think I was signing away anything of value. End quote. She said that she didn't want to know how much money she could have made from all the merchandise sold over the years. It would be too upsetting. But that didn't stop her from roasting George about her bad business deal. And though amongst your many possessions you have owned my likeness, lo, all these years, so that every time I look in the mirror I have to send you a check for a couple of bucks. Well, Carrie and Leia's identities would forever be intertwined. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Carrie Fisher's acting performances outside of Star Wars. She often portrayed characters that were empowered, strong, and challenged the norms of how women are supposed to behave. Like her character Marie in When Harry Met Sally, who has a Rolodex full of eligible bachelors in the city. All right, wait, here, here we go. Ken Darman. He's been married for over a year. Really? Married. As she folds down a corner of the card and tucks it back into the Rolodex. In the movie Soap Dish, Carrie plays a casting director who gets hot male actors onto her casting couch. Very, very good, Mark. Very true. I love what you're doing. I just, I think we could try it one more time, and this time, I don't know. Maybe try one without your shirt. Carrie often played herself on screen, or a heightened version of herself, like her appearance on Sex and the City. I'm a writer too. Well, actually, I'm, well, I have a column in New York. I'm Carrie, you're Carrie. I write, you write. I have a child, you know, I, I really, I can't do this. And her hilarious guest starring role on 30 Rock, where Carrie plays a feminist comedy writer who was one of Liz Lemon's heroes. 
I broke barriers for you. I really have to go. I sat around while my junk went bad. All for you. I didn't have any kids. You're my kid. You're my kid that never calls. Yikes. Help me, Liz Lemon. You're my only hope. Carrie Fisher gave so many fantastic performances on screen and on stage over the years. But seeing her back on screen as Leia in The Force Awakens was really emotional for me. When she walked out to greet Han Solo, let me tell you, there was not a dry eye in that movie theater where I was. What made Carrie Fisher's appearance so powerful for me was not just the nostalgia of the character, it was really seeing Carrie Fisher as her 60-year-old self on screen. You change your hair. Same jacket. No, new jacket. We don't often get to see older women portraying heroes, let alone a general on screen. But there, Carrie Fisher was, with her hair and a loosely braided updo looking mature, strong, and just perfect. Of course, it didn't stop gossip magazines and talk show hosts from talking about the weight Disney had made her lose before reprising Leia. And when people online began discussing whether or not Carrie had aged well, she hit back on Twitter. Quote, Please stop debating whether or not I aged well. Unfortunately, it hurts all three of my feelings. My body hasn't aged as well as I have. Blow us. End quote. One of the greatest things about the Force Awakens press tour was Carrie Fisher's refreshing honesty, whether it was on Twitter or talk shows. You actually physically transformed for this role. Yes, I did. Do, I did lose weight. And uh, I think it's a stupid conversation. Okay, Not we'll move on. You. We'll move on. <laughs> Not with you. I mean, it's good with you, but normally I wouldn't talk about it with someone else. But you're so thin, let's talk about it. How do you keep that going on? When it comes to sensitive subjects, some people either skirt around the issue or some people just don't talk about it at all. Carrie disregarded what was considered socially acceptable. She approached all subjects candidly and with no filter. Not because she wasn't afraid or didn't respect the sensitivity of the subject matter. She did it because... I like the truth in any form. It only bothers me if I'm asked the truth about other people. I cannot tell their truth. I will tell mine in any form. This is the Carrie Fisher that meant the most to me. I will remember her as the woman who always spoke her truth and someone who could transform the most dire subjects into something to laugh at. How will you remember Carrie Fisher? I'm sure whatever memory you cling to, Carrie would manage to find the humor in your choice. Carrie Fisher passed away on December 27, 2016, but her legacy and spirit will live on. We'll also get to see her on screen in December of this year when Episode 8, The Last Jedi, hits theaters. It's going to be bittersweet but I cannot wait to see her as General Leia one last time. What will her storyline be in the new film? Feel free to share your theories with me on Twitter at Jennifer Landa, hashtag JediBeat, or my Facebook page. Be sure to subscribe to the Force Center feed to never miss a Jedi Beat or any of our shows like the Force Center main show, and new shows like Star Wars Ranked, where we rank all things Star Wars, such as the top five reasons to rewatch The Attack of the Clones. Ken and Joseph make a very good case. You can find us on iTunes, Podomatic, or Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, spread the word across the land. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, this has been The Jedi Beat. Happy days. Are here again The skies above Are clear again So let's sing a song Of cheer again Happy days Are here Again 
catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.